The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I grew up as a latchkey kid, uh, which meant both of my parents uh, were working as I grew up. Is anyone else latchkey kids here? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, if you're a latchkey kid, you, you probably know the summer times were the best. <laughs> it was like freedom, no parents. And usually what that meant was, as kids, we watch a lot of TV, right? Uh, my sisters and I would get into a lot of arguments growing up about, you know, which show we'd get to watch. And we'd get into so many fights that finally we just, we just uh, resolved to come to a truce. And we decided that we would each get one day of the week where we get to watch TV, Okay, it was, this was the one day when we'd have unquestioned, sovereign control of the TV remote, right? And, you, yeah, this is actually what my remote looked like. <laughs> this is a zine I remember very clearly. And you'd think this was a good idea. The, the only problem is I grew up with three sisters. <laughs> so what that meant is for three days I had to endure Little House on the Prairie, Gidget, Jem and the holograms. And I had to endure three days of that before I could get to my favorite shows, right? He-Man, G.I. Joe, the greatest show of all time, Voltron. Can I get an amen? No. <laughs> so on my day, you know, I always ended up watching these shows by myself because, you know, obviously my three sisters weren't interested in in uh, Masters of the Universe, He-Man, and G.I. Joe. But I would, I would often just be laying on my couch by myself, and I'd have the remote on the coffee table in front of me, and, and my sisters would usually be upstairs doing their thing, and, and I'd get kind of bored. I'd just call out their names and have them come down. I, I need your help. Come down. And begrudgingly, they would eventually come down, and I'd wait until they get really close to the coffee table. And then as I'm laying there, I'd be like, can you hand me the remote over here? And it always got him really upset because I was asking them to do something that, you know, obviously I could have very easily done myself. And, I, you know, I, I did it to be annoying. I did it to get back at them for making me watch Gidget. <laughs> but I share this story with you because, you know, Pastor Steve opened uh, this new sermon series on, on service last week entitled Useful Hands. And it made me think, you know, why is it that God calls us to serve him? You ever thought about that? Why would an all-powerful God who can accomplish anything in his own power, anything at all in this universe, ask for our help? For what reason would God invite us to do a work that he himself can do far better, far more efficiently than us? This morning, we're going to uncover the answer to this question and discover his purpose for service, why he calls us into his work, and how he has equipped us to do it. Uh, you know, I've been on staff as the executive pastor here at Emmanuel for a little over a year now, and people often ask me, like, how, how has that transition been for you, going from the corporate world now into full-time ministry? And so it's kind of made me really think about the changes and some of the differences, and you know, what I often share is now, one of the biggest challenges in, in working in ministry versus the corporate world is it's, it's just harder to get things done. It really is. And, you know, in a corporate world, there's, there's a lot of motivation to work. 
uh, there's a lot of motivation to work hard because there's a lot at stake, right? Uh, it's your pay. It's your career. This is, this is your financial security. But in the context of the church, you know, with the exception of a few staff members like myself, no one's really getting paid for the work that they do here, right? Everything is done on a volunteer basis. Like you, I've, I've been on the other side of it for, for over 20 years. I, I'm very familiar with the reasons that people come up with um, when they choose not to serve because I, I've used them myself. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone here, but I, I just want you to listen and see if any of these reasons might resonate with you, either now or, or in your past. I'd like to. I'd like to help but things are just too busy at work. I'm too tied up with my kids' activities. I don't feel adequate for this role. I'm not in a really good place spiritually to serve right now. This role doesn't really line up with my gifts. I'll help. I just don't want to lead. I'll serve. I just don't want a title. I'm still pretty new to the church. Shouldn't someone else who's been here longer step up? I've been serving the church for a long time. Shouldn't someone that's newer step up? (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying that these are illegitimate reasons for choosing not to serve. I can empathize because I know firsthand in all the challenges that come with trying to serve the church when you already have so many responsibilities, so many demands upon you, so many things on your plate, you know, your family, your job, But I want to challenge you today to really look deep within and to be honest about why you might have purposely chosen not to serve the church and in doing so also seek to understand why God chooses the church to serve his purposes. And so this morning our text comes from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'd like to read it for you. This is the word of God. And it reads... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You can always tell when the Apostle Paul gets really excited because he, he tends to write these really long, run-on sentences. <laughs> and that's really what this is. Um, let's pray together as we continue. God, we, we want to hear from you this morning. Uh, you have a word for us. You've called us into your service. And Lord, forgive us, Lord, because so often, so many of us, Lord, um, choose not to serve. And 
So, Lord, help us to look deep within our hearts. Search us, Lord, to really understand, Lord, why we choose to sit on the sidelines and not participate in a work that you're calling us to do. Um, Awaken us. Humble us, Lord. Let us hear from you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So there's so many uh, reasons, right, for people to not serve the church. But I think it's important to remember that when an all-powerful God asks us to help him, it's, it's not for our good or for his good. It's for ours. And we're often reluctant, I think, to serve God in the church because, you know, we think that God wants something from us. But the truth is, he wants something for us. And so if I were to summarize, you know, this entire passage into one sentence, it would be this. That God has given every believer gifts. At least one gift. To serve the body of Christ so that we might grow to be like Christ for the honor of Christ. In other words, if you're a person of faith, you've been given a gift by Jesus, every believer in this room, to serve the church that is his bride so that you might be more like Jesus to his great glory. Now, uh, since I've opened with this idea that all of us have been given spiritual gifts, at least one, before I go further, I want to spend just a minute on this topic. Because throughout a number of his letters, the Apostle Paul gives us several working uh, lists of what spiritual gifts are. They can primarily be found in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, and I've, I've charted them here. And some of you may be very familiar with them. Prophecy, serving, teaching, Miracles, faith, the word of wisdom, tongues. But what I wanted to bring to your attention is that there are a lot of different opinions on what these, uh, how these gifts might be defined and whether some of them are still even operational today. But I want to share this list with you because I want to highlight something here. Is you'll notice none of these lists are the exact same, right? Some are shorter, some are longer, and they differ in other ways as well. And I think there's a point to be made here, and that is that spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture were never meant to be an exhaustive list, right? This isn't a comprehensive list. And so I think it would be helpful to give you a working definition of the term spiritual gift. Wayne Grudem defines spiritual gifts as this. Any ability, any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. Now, this is a very open-ended, very broad definition, isn't it? Any ability, any ministry, there's really only two conditions. One, that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and two, that it is used in the ministry of the church. And so I want us to get away from putting spiritual gifts into this small little box where it only involves, you know, the things that are listed or these really spiritual activities such as preaching or evangelism, healing or tongues. But I want us to see spiritual gifts as any ability that you have that can be empowered by the Holy Spirit and used for the ministry of the church. 
And what does this mean? I think this means that your financial acumen, if you have some financial savvy, God has given it to you as a gift. It didn't just come to you from business school. It didn't come to you from reading the Wall Street Journal. But when you submit that by faith to God and his service, that can be a spiritual gift to the church. And the same is true of your administrative skills, uh, maybe your love for cooking, for feeding people, uh, your gifts in graphic design, photography, your musical gifts. And we, we saw it on display with the worship team. All of these, when submitted by faith to God and for his service, that can very well be a spiritual gift. So please keep this in mind as we continue to talk about spiritual gifts and what it means to be in ministry. Um, Let's look again at verses 7 and 8. It says this, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Christ has given each of us spiritual gifts. That's what this text is telling us. Jesus has given everyone who places their faith in him gifts of the Spirit by which we are to serve him and his church. Now, think about that word, gift, right? It's not earned. It's not yours to begin with. It didn't come from you. It came to you. It came to us from someone else, from another. And so when you think about gifts in this way, there's really no room for pride when it comes to spiritual gifts, right? I mean, isn't it silly if you think about it, just, oh, my gift is so much better than your gift, right? I mean, how can we be arrogant about a gift, something that someone gives you? But I think we have a tendency to do this sometimes in the church, that we elevate certain gifts over another. We hold some in higher regard than another. These gifts should humble us. They're simply gifts. They were given to us by the grace of God. And it's interesting because the Greek word for grace is charis. Charis. And the Greek word for spiritual gifts is charismata. Charismata. And so our spiritual gifts are literally rooted in this idea of grace and of giving. And it's not only because we receive them by God's grace and by God's giving, but we're to take these spiritual gifts and we're to give them to others in that same spirit of grace, charis. And you see, God's gifts were never meant to be kept. They were meant to be shared. In verse 8, when Paul writes, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He's actually quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. But there's something very strange about this quote. Because when he quotes this, he says, Christ gave gifts to men. But if you turn to Psalm 68, 18, this is what it reads. It actually says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. Well, which is it? Does Christ give us these gifts or does he receive them? And I think the answer is both. We serve a king who not only receives our gifts, 
but one who gives them. And these gifts that the king has given us were in the end meant to be given back to him in his service for his glory. And so there's a a sense in which he's both the giver and the receiver of these gifts. Because God's gifts to us were never meant to be kept. They were meant to be shared. And when we share them with others, these gifts that God has given us, we are in fact giving them back to him. You know, it's interesting. um, This picture that Paul paints for us in verse 8 is one of a military victor generously sharing the spoils of his victory. You know what it means? It means these spiritual gifts that we often take so lightly, they were won in a great spiritual battle. And when Paul writes, he descended into the lower regions, the earth is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. He's saying, when Christ died on the cross, when he was buried under the earth and was raised from the grave, he conquered death. And through that victory, he not only offers us the gifts of salvation, but he's given us spiritual gifts as well. So you see, when we learn all those, these gifts come freely to us, it doesn't mean that they don't come without a great cost. They're free, but they're not cheap. They came with the death and resurrection of our Savior. I want to show you a a brief 30-second video from uh, the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, I was a latchkey kid. (laughs) This episode aired in 2004, and some of you uh, may have seen this. This was actually one of the most iconic moments in talk show history. (laughs) And uh, just to set this up, Oprah had 11 teachers, kind of unbeknownst to them, come up on stage, and she surprised them by giving them a brand new car. It was a Pontiac G6. And then she tells her audience that she has one more car to give away. And so everyone in the audience is given a small gift box, right? And then she tells them that one lucky audience member who finds that key, a key in their gift box, will be the owner of that last car. And this is what happens. That's pretty crazy, huh? You get a car, you get a car. Everybody gets a car. Now, I just told you this morning that every single one of us in this room has received something far more valuable than a Pontiac G6. It's a spiritual gift from God himself. I didn't see anyone here jumping around, hugging each other in tears, (laughs) crying with joy. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) But I want you to notice, there's some real palpable joy here, right? They'd realize that they'd each receive this costly gift. Notice how they share in each other's joy. You know, it really should be like that in the church of Christ. That we should celebrate our gifts with one another. We should use them for one another, and it should be a source of joy. Not a burden. You know, um, immediately after the show aired, there was this controversy from this big giveaway. Pontiac gave away 276 cars to all these audience members. And these cars were worth almost $30,000 each. And the controversy was that people soon realized that if they took the car 
it was actually going to cost them up to $7,000 in taxes because they had to report that car, that gift, as um, that value as income. And so all these winners, they started complaining that they'd won this car, and now they're going to have to write this big check to the IRS. And the rest of the world is looking at them and thinking, dude, you got a brand new car, <laughs> right? But I think that's the picture of many of us in the church. You know, through Jesus' death and resurrection, God paid a great price, and he's given us salvation, and it's a free gift. And with that, he's also given us these spiritual gifts to each of us, and he wants us to use it to serve others. And we complain at that small cost. Oh, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I'm not really in a good place to serve. Just think about how small and ungrateful that makes us seem. You know, there was an article that was written just a couple years ago. This was 10 years after that show was aired, and it featured some of the audience members who had won that car, and it reported what they had done with it. There was one couple who went to the show together. They each won a car. <laughs> they sold both their cars because <laughs> they didn't want to pay the taxes, and they took the money, and they just paid some of their other bills. But it was, you know, when I was reading the article, it caught my eye because there was this lady, this woman called her named Molly Vilweber, and... This is a picture of her G6 along with her son and daughter. And the article says this. For Molly Weber, the car is a reminder of a period she called the best time in her life. She started her own business, and the car was her mode of transportation as her children grew up. It's been a great car, Weber said, her voice still carrying a note of excitement 10 years early, later probably the only brand new car I've had in my life. She was part of a group of four friends who drove to Chicago for a girls weekend that included the Oprah show and she's the only one who still has her G6. Two of them sold their cars and one was totaled a few months ago. But Veal Weber's G6 still gets consistent use. In spite of the bumps and bruises it sustained over its long life, it survived the flood and the multi-car pileup and it's already outlived both Pontiac, the brand actually shut down in 2010, and it outlasted the original Oprah Winfrey show, which went off the air in 2011. She hopes the G6 will get her daughter Morgan through college, and then they'll simply see how long it lasts. She said, I'm hoping to drive it until we can't drive it anymore. That's so great, isn't it? Now, I hope we use our gift like Molly used hers. She didn't get rid of it because it was going to cost her something. She kept it. She used it. She shared it. And now she was looking back a decade later, and she was so grateful. She remembers that gift with some of the best times of her life. God has given you an amazing, amazing gift. Don't let it go to waste. Use it. Share it. One day you will look back in your life and you'll be so grateful for all the joys and memories that that gift has brought you. Some of you might be thinking, well, okay, I I don't mind using my gifts, but I I really don't think that I'm 
called into this ministry. These gifts were given to every believer, verse 11 and 12 tells us, to do the work of ministry. These spiritual gifts were given to all of us to do the work of ministry. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, next week, Pastor Steve is going to really hone in on verse 11 and kind of unpack the definition and roles that are listed here. So I'm not going to spend much time on it today, but if you're, if you're reading this verse, you might have expected it to read like this, right? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd and teachers to do the work of ministry. But that's not what it says, does it? It says he called those who are in position, these positions to equip the saints for ministry. This means that the work of ministry does not fall on people we often think of as ministers, right? So who's responsible for the work of ministry? It says the saints. It's the saints. Raise your hand if you're a saint. That's right, we're all saints. Anyone who's a believer in Christ, you received him by faith. The Bible says you are perfectly righteous. You're holy and you're blameless because of the blood of Christ. And it's hard to believe sometimes, but we are saints. And Paul was constantly reminding the church of this fact that though there may not be this dramatic transformation on the outside, something has fundamentally changed with you on the inside. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. And notice it doesn't say that these leaders of the church are to equip some saints or certain saints. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This means all of them, all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. And so the work of ministry was never meant to be only for vocational ministers or people in full-time ministry. Rather, this is the high calling of every believer in Christ. This means just like everyone gets a car, everyone gets a spiritual gift, and everyone receives a call into ministry. Um, you know, I have a good friend who's a pastor. He's been a mentor and discipler of me for many years since I was really a young kid. And I remember when I first got my job out of college, he used to tell me, you know, when people ask you what you do, don't tell them you work at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Tell them I'm a minister of Jesus Christ and I support my ministry as an auditor at PricewaterhouseCoopers. This is what he would tell his whole church in Toronto. And I think, you know, this is how we should introduce ourselves when we're asked what we do for a living. Because this is the believer's first and greatest calling in life. I think it's a great practice because it's a constant reminder that we are not defined by what we do. Who we are is defined by whose we are. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. That is who you belong to. And though this world wants to define you by what you do for a living, we are instead to be defined by what we do for the Lord. We are ministers of Jesus Christ. Every last one of us. And so our purpose in life is not to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer. Our purpose in life is to serve Jesus Christ and to do his work 
to obey His will. And what are we told that we do the work of ministry for? For what purpose? For building up the body of Christ. Verse 11, 12. For building up the body of Christ. You know, the first time the word spiritual gift actually shows up in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 1. And Paul, in this letter, writes in verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What is he saying? He's saying, look, I long to see you, you guys. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. He's saying, I can't wait to share my spiritual gift with you, to strengthen you with this gift. And when Paul uses his gift for their benefit, what does he say will happen? It says they're both encouraged in their faith. Not just them as the audience or the receiver of that gift, but Paul also as the giver. They're both blessed. And that's the way God designed it. There's this circular dynamic at work here, right? When we look at the verse, again, it says, the saints, every believer in Christ, are called to do the work to build up the body. Well, what's the body? Every believer in Christ. Until when? Until we all attain maturity. Who's all? Every believer in Christ. So in God's world, his work involves every believer in Christ for the benefit of every believer in Christ. And this is his design. And so when one of us chooses to sit on the sidelines and not share their God-given gift, there's a sense in which we are all missing out on something that God wants each of us to have. You know, when I was in my 20s, um, I was playing basketball um, one night, and I was trying to guard someone, and I was trying to block this pass, and the, and the basketball hit me like square on the thumb, like right on the tip, and it dislocated my thumb, and I knew right away because it was like pointed in a very wrong direction. And so I asked one of the guys, can you just pull it out for me real quick? <laughs> and so he popped it back into place, but then it immediately began to swell, and my thumb was out of commission for like a few weeks. It just, just couldn't use it, couldn't bend it, couldn't do anything. And I never realized how important this little part of my body was. Actually, it was my right thumb. Until I couldn't use it anymore. I couldn't write. I couldn't hold things with this hand. I couldn't even zip up my zipper. I really dreaded going to the bathroom. (laughs) I felt so helpless. And even though I had another thumb, you know... um, My right thumb could do things that no other part of my body could do, not even my left thumb. And I think this is why Paul uses the human body as a metaphor for the church. He's saying every part, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, serves an important purpose. And when it cannot be used, there are certain things the entire body is actually robbed from doing. Spiritual gifts were given to every believer in Christ because every believer in Christ is called to do the work of ministry. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, I'm ready to use my gifts for ministry for this church, but how long? Right? 
Just tell me how long I'm committed to this. And the answer is found in verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. As we grow into spiritual maturity, both faith and knowledge begins to converge. They almost become one. They unite. And in your younger years, you you believe by faith that God is good, right? Well, I do believe that. But as you grow in your faith, as you mature, and as faith and knowledge begins to unite, you, you begin to know. You just know. You don't believe that God is good. Because it's based on your experience of his goodness, his faithfulness in your life. And so, but the truth is, no matter how much that gap closes as we grow in our faith, on this side of heaven, faith and knowledge will never reach perfect unity until the day when we see him face to face and we know him just as we are fully known. And because of that fact, the truth is we're called to serve the church with our gifts until that day, right? Until Christ returns or until he calls me home. And so now let me try and wrap this up by defining God's purpose in giving us this gifts and calling us to serve him. Why does an all-powerful God call us to do something that he can do? Why does he call us to serve him? And it's because of this. When we serve the body of Christ, we grow in the fullness of Christ. We grow in the fullness of Christ. Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. If you've been at ICC for any length of time, um, just ask yourself, are you becoming more like Christ here? Would that describe us in this room? Are we a body of little Christ's? When we do the work of ministry, we grow and we mature into the fullness of Christ. This is why an all-powerful God invites puny little people to join him in his work. He wants to do a work in us, not through us. Now, I'm not saying that just because you sign up to serve in some capacity somewhere in this church that you are going to guarantee to grow leaps and bounds spiritually. I'm not saying that. Because I recognize that there are some people who choose to serve and who may spend their whole lives serving the church, but they never change. They're never transformed. They still don't grow. And why is this? I think in most cases it's because even though they may serve faithfully, they've never really served in faith. It was never really an act of faith. What I mean is, Uh, we work, but we only do it in our own terms. We minister, but we only do it within our preset limits. We serve, but we only do it in our own strength. That's not a recipe for growth. That's a prescription for burnout. 
And this may sound counterintuitive, but to really grow in service, it needs to be an act of faith. It means it requires stretching ourselves beyond even what we think we're capable of. It's about, not about checking a box or doing it as an act of duty or in response to guilt. Philip Brooks says this, this quote I heard many years ago, and it's just stuck with me over the years. He said, do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of the work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle in doing the work. What is he saying here? He's saying, look, we're all too content to settle when it comes to doing God's work. Well, I'll only do what I think I'm capable of doing. I will only accomplish the tasks that are equal to my power. And Brooks is saying, don't, don't ask for that. Don't, don't pray for that. There's nothing miraculous about you doing anything by your own strength, your own talents. He's saying, instead, pray that God will grant you the power to do things that you didn't even think were possible. Let yourself be stretched in your service to him. Then the work, when the work is done, you'll realize that it wasn't what you accomplished for God that was so great. It was what God has accomplished in you. That's what's great. That is the true miracle. You see, through the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit by faith, we develop the fruit of the Spirit. And that's really what we're after, right? What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is, this is the very definition of Christ-likeness. This is where spiritual maturity is found. This is our goal. This is the purpose of the church. Uh, you know, in the midst of this, preparing this sermon, um, I had this thought yesterday morning that instead of sharing a, a story about how serving has changed me, why not reach out to some of the people who are already serving at ICC and let them share their testimonies of how God is growing them in the fullness of Christ through their work in the ministry. So I sent out an email, not to, not to everyone that serves, but a number of people just requesting a quick testimony. And so thank you to everyone who responded, and I apologize in advance that I didn't have time to read. read I don't have time to read all of them, but I just want to read a few for you. And I, w- I want you to hear how even in the midst of their struggle, that they were able to overcome with faith and how God is rewarding that faith by growing them in the fullness of Christ. Um, This person, um, small group leader, says this, I thought of when I first decided to serve, I thought to myself that I didn't think I could handle serving the body with my personal struggles and the time investment, especially in dealing with issues that stem from coming together in marriage, transitioning to having newborns, work and the busyness of my life, and on and on. And although there are periods to step back, I then thought that there will always be something that comes in my way. There will always be something to prevent me from taking that step. And so I decided to take the step of faith to serve the body. And as I have done so, it's been difficult and it's been stretching during the service, but there are no regrets. 
In the midst of service, it's given me an opportunity for God to move and act, inviting me to grow and be used to bless others. <clears throat> this comes from one of the teachers of um, our children's ministry. I was hesitant to begin teaching because I was afraid of overcommitting myself and possible burnout. But I found myself joyful around our children who grow, learn, and love Jesus with such purity and unfiltered curiosity. And it has grown my faith and wonder in ways I think only children can teach me. This comes from someone in the welcoming ministry. I really enjoyed my time serving in the welcome ministry. First, I was a bit hesitant to be a part of it because I still felt like a newcomer myself. But I decided to just make myself open to serve in this way. It's genuinely helped me to grow in love, especially as I remember how tough it was for me and my family as we were looking for a church. I remember my early weeks here and how I felt welcomed and thankful that people sought me out to talk to me and allow me to feel loved and part of the family. I really do pray each time I serve that the Lord uses me in these brief encounters and in the fellowship time afterwards to show people they are welcomed by his people and loved by him. It's not so that they would simply keep coming to our church or that they would, there's some type of project by my efforts, but it would encourage them to keep coming out of love. It's my desire that through finding a community, they can grow in their knowledge and their love of our God. So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't share some of the needs of our ministry in serving the church. Um, we have a lot. I really don't have time to list all of them today. But let me just name off a few very specific needs. We need someone who's trustworthy, who can help count our offering from week to week. We really only have two people doing that every week. Someone who uh, is, is um, honest and, and can help stewardship uh, some of our church finances on the finance team. We need people who love to see uh, the, food, the fellowship that food fosters and that can help organize our refreshments after service. We need someone to help us keep this facility tidy, to help set up tables, especially during special events, to help set up uh, like the children's ministry even before service. We need someone to come early and set up signs and banners to make our building more inviting to welcome newcomers into our worship and into our community. We're always in need of teachers and helpers for our children's classrooms, which continues to grow. You guys just keep having babies. <laughs> and I sleep with the children's ministry director. She reminds me every night, we need more teachers. <laughs> we need someone to edit and post our sermons online every week. We need graphic design help, photography, video skills to serve in our arts and media team so we can communicate the gospel more effectively and through more creative channels. Um, praise God, we have a group of people doing this already, but we need more people who have really a heart to pray, to intercede for others that are hurting, that are in need in our prayer ministry. This really is a ministry that empowers every other ministry in our church. We need people who love the lost, and want to reach out to them with the gospel and with love by serving some of the real felt needs in our community here in Wheeling. We need ideas for outreach programs. And not just ideas, we need help executing it. It's part of our missions and outreach team. We, we just need more leaders. Um, 
We need leaders of community groups. We need leaders of our various ministries. We need men and women who are not intimidated by titles or by responsibility, but who are ready to go on the offensive for Christ and his kingdom. There's so many needs. There's so few workers. Please pray for our church. Pray how God might use you at our church. As I said, God doesn't need us to do his work. He's, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But this is God's ultimate purpose for, for our service. He's not looking for something from us. He wants something for us. Let me close with this one last story. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> when you look at the map of Israel, there are really only two seas. There's the Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee's on top, small little sea, the Dead Sea below. And the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is one that is teeming with life. It's surrounded by all this lush vegetation, and it has nearly 30 different species of fish, some of which cannot be found anywhere else in the world. And many of the disciples, they made a living off this sea, if you recall. They were fishermen. and It was so full of life. And not even 90 miles to the south, we have the Dead Sea. It's about four times the size of the Sea of Galilee. And though it looks beautiful on the outside, inside it's filled with so much salt. It actually has ten times the saline of ocean water that nothing can live in it or around it. Hence the name, the Dead Sea. And the irony is both of these seas are fed by the Jordan River. And yet they couldn't be any more different, could they? The only real difference between the two seas is, is that one has water flowing into it and out of it, and the other only has water flowing into it. The Dead Sea takes, does nothing but take in water. It has no out. The Sea of Galilee is a picture of someone who not only receives from God, but gives from God. That person is full of life and flourishing in every way. The Dead Sea is quite the opposite. It's the one who does nothing but takes, who never allows anything he or she receives to flow out of them and flow into others. And though things may look fine on the outside, you'll find there's really nothing but death in the inside. God wants you to grow. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to give your best to him because he wants his best for you. And when you step out in faith and into his promise, and when all of us collectively do the same, the church becomes the reality of God's vision for the world. You know, we live in a world where everyone is a consumer. Almost all of us, we just want to receive. We want to get. Few want to give. But imagine a place unlike any other where 80% of the work is not being accomplished by 20% of the people. Right? This is what you see almost everywhere else in the world. Every other organization. 
But instead, 100% of the people are all in, serving the kingdom side by side with the same passion and same commitment. This is the vision of the church in God's eyes. This was actually the first century church in Acts. We live in a world full of diversity, but really there's no unity today. People, they're drawn lines based on race, on religion, on politics, and it's ugly. It's getting uglier. And many times the church looks no different from the world in this way, but this isn't God's design. This isn't his desire. His desire is that the church be the one place in this world in which an undeniable unity shines in the midst of diversity. A place where people of diverse backgrounds and cultures and gifts unite to worship and serve one God, just as we sing, as one people. This is God's vision for the church. This is the hope for our world. There's only one way to get there, and that's when a people of faith step out in faith and answer the call into the work of ministry. Where our gifts are not sold off or ignored or bemoaned because they're too costly, but our God-given gifts are given back to God in his service for his kingdom. May we be that church.